Hello, and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris, and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Let's get our Bibles out and let's turn to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. In the title of my message, Godly Grooves. Godly Grooves. Father, we thank you so much for your wonderful word. Thank you for the teachings we've heard so far and for what we'll hear uh, in the remainder of the day. And I pray, Lord, that you'll bless us now as we focus on what you've called us to do, Lord. We're all servants. We're all uh, called to pastor your people, to teach your word. Lord, we want to do it well. Lord, we serve a great God, a great king, and we want to be faithful servants. So encourage our hearts in this session, Lord. Speak to us by your spirit, through your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it was 41 years ago, the last Sunday in September, that I answered God's call on my life to start a church. With no funding, no launch team, no facility other than our living room, we began a church. Kathy and I had been married a month, but we knew what God wanted us to do. Our first Sunday service was attended by us, five friends, and an 18-month-old toddler. All I had going for me was the Holy Spirit, the Bible, a good wife, and an unshakable confidence in the power of God. I had no idea what the next 40 years would look like or how ministry would play out for us, But in my heart of hearts, I knew then what I know today, that it was God's intention for my wife and I to start a church. I was motivated by a promise that Jesus made over 2,000 years ago when he told his disciples in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Jesus made that promise in 30 AD by the waters of Caesarea Philippi, but that same promise has echoed in my heart every day for the last 41 years. And today, four decades later, I stand before you as a testimony to the Lord's ability to keep his promises. You see, here's how Christianity works out. Jesus makes commitments to you. And then by faith, you make commitments to him. And as those commitments run their course and are lived out in the rough and tumble of our life, we realize the fruits of faithfulness. That God is more faithful than I ever imagined. And that my heart grows in the midst of learning to be faithful to him. There is a verse here among the many verses in Psalm 119 that I want us to read. It's verse 32. The psalmist pens these words. I will run the course of your commandments, for you shall enlarge my heart. Notice again the admonition. I will run the course 
of your commandments. You see, some things in life just need to run their course before they can be fully appreciated. Watch a tree's foliage fall from its limbs in autumn. And throughout the winter, its branches are mere twigs. If you didn't know better, you would conclude that that tree was dead. But let nature run its course. And the miracle of new life will bud in springtime. By summer, it'll be in full bloom. A young boy meets the girl of his dreams. He'd love to escape with her and they live happily ever after. But though she loves him too, he's not yet proven he's marrying material. Besides, she's got school to finish and parents to please. Just let the relationship run its course. And if it's meant to be, it'll blossom into a marriage. Oh, you're achy and you're running a fever. You're miserable. You got one of those dreadful stomach bugs and you think you might just die. But you don't need an ambulance or an ER. Just let the illness run its course. In a few days, you'll be feeling better. Your favorite baseball team drafts a young pitcher. Everyone's excited. He's hailed as the next superstar. Why not rush him to the big leagues? He's needed. But no, better to stick with the plan. Speed up his training and it'll short circuit his development. To reach a player's full potential, his progress should run its course. Sometimes nature and relationships and illnesses and training just need to run their course. There's no reason to interfere. What's needed is time and patience. And so it is with our commitments to God. Let God's commandments and your commitments run their course. Make a commitment, but then give it time and consistent obedience. Don't just attend to your commitment for a day or a month or even a year. Then get impatient or distracted and abandon that commitment for other pursuits. No, stick with it. Before you judge the results, create a pattern around God's promise and follow through with it over time. Log in a few years, even a decade of following God and attending to your commitments and then measure the results. As I've often quoted, God's callings deserve a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. Not a spurt of attentiveness, but a long obedience. We need to pursue God's call with an effort that's not scattered, but is targeted. We should all allow God time and opportunity to do what he's promised to do. My 41 years illustrate that if you do, God will fulfill his promises, and even more, he'll change and bless and grow you in the process. In an interview with Rolling Stone magazine, author Jeff Bridges, he was asked the question, what advice do you wish someone had given you when you were 20 years old? Bridges replied, I got the advice. I just didn't take it. My dad would say, it's all about habit, Jeff. You got to get into good habits. And I said, no, dad, you got to live each moment. Live it as the first one and be fresh. And he'd say, that's a wonderful thought, but that's not what we are. We are habitual creatures. 
It's about developing these grooves. Jeff Bridges concludes, as I age, I now can see his point. What you practice, that's what you become. And this is what I've learned. 40 years ago, I made a commitment to God to build his church. But what I've discovered over those years is that as God's commitments have run their course in my life, it's those commandments that have built me. As I've tried to keep my commitments, they've created godly grooves in me that have enlarged me and made me a better man. 40 years of doing ministry with God has enlarged my heart and my mind and my soul and my strength. This past year, my son Zach, his family, they gave me a turntable for Christmas. That's right, a prehistoric record player. He knew that I had an old vinyl record collection, but no way to play them. You know, there is nothing like the scratchiness and the fuzziness that sounds, the sounds that come out of a, of a true black vinyl record. You know, you drop the needle down on the black vinyl, and it's so hard to see them, but the needle falls into those little grooves in the vinyl. And it's those grooves that then guide the needle round and round and emit the sound of beautiful music. Or as we used to say, it's groovy. And we are all like a vinyl record. The grooves that have been laid down over time, the grooves that have been etched into our psyche and into our perspective, the commandments we've followed and the commitments that we've lived by are what has guided our needle and has produced the music of our lives. Today, I want to look back on my 41 years as a pastor and discuss four godly grooves that have been etched in me and I think have yielded some groovy music. And please don't misunderstand, I'm not promoting myself as some kind of pastoral success story. I realize that there are many other pastors with larger churches and with greater influence and with more far-reaching ministries than my own. All I'm saying is I started and pastored a church and made it 41 years. With my marriage intact and with my kids still speaking to me, my confidence in God and in his word have not wavered. I even have a church now, folks that love me, and I'm excited that we're still committed to doing whatever we can to help build God's kingdom. I don't know if that's how you measure pastoral success or not. I just know I'm a blessed man. And I want to continue to be a blessing to God and to his people in the years that I have remaining to serve. When I think of my life in ministry over the last 40 years, I feel like it's the outgrowth of four commandments that I receive from God and have been determined to keep. I made a commitment to follow one God and teach one book, and love one woman, and pastor one church. These are the godly grooves in my life. I've followed one God, I've taught one book, I've loved one woman, and I've pastored one church. And they have produced some truly groovy music in my life. 
Well, the initial commitment that led me to Christ and called, caused me to embrace his calling to be a pastor, and it really guided me every day since, is my commitment to follow one God. And you might think that should be no, a no-brainer for every Christian, let alone a pastor. I mean, after all, Christianity is the world's largest monotheistic religion. Unlike pagans, Christians are known to follow one God. Yet this is not always practically true in the church and among pastors. For pastors tend to follow lots of different voices. Some pastors follow the will and dictates of their denominational leaders. That never made sense to me. Why would any church allow people outside the congregation in another town with different concerns tell a local church what to do and how to function? This is why I was so happy to discover Calvary Chapel. I loved and appreciated what I learned from my pastor, Chuck Smith. I embraced the ministry distinctives that were Calvary because they were also biblical. With Calvary Chapel, I could listen to and I could follow God's spirit without headquarters looking over my shoulder, yet still be part of a group of pastors who loved each other and served Jesus. Without a group, it's easy for a pastor to become an island to himself. That's not a healthy way to do ministry. As Calvary Chapel, I've been free to follow Jesus while maintaining some human accountability. And it's been a perfect blend. It's served me well for 41 years. I've always followed God, not some human hierarchy. Neither have I followed the will of the people. Now, please understand, the opinions of church members should matter to their pastor. It's important what the people of my church think, and my door is always open to them. But when the rubber meets the road, I have to obey God, not man. And people pressure is a huge temptation for some pastors. Popular opinion and political correctness can drive the ship. Oh, if we don't follow brother so-and-so, he'll stop giving, and we need his money. Too many pastors are bullied by folks with strong opinions or deep pockets. Thankfully, we've never succumbed to these temptations. We've followed one God, and we've trusted him to meet our needs. And I'll tell you, he's done so in spades. Some pastors follow the denomination. Others follow certain people in the church while other pastors follow their own ego. And I don't want to fall into that trap either. Now I admit, it takes a lot of chutzpah to be a pastor. You, you know what chutzpah means. It's a Jewish word. The dictionary defines it as a shameless audacity. It's a boldness bordering on arrogance. And in my opinion, a good pastor has to possess a little chutzpah. I mean, I am a sinful, fallible, very mortal man, yet I dare to get up here every single week and claim to speak for God. I pray and provide direction that affects the lives of other people that I believe is in harmony with the still small voice of the Holy Spirit. I have even exercised church discipline on behalf of God himself. Those kinds of duties require boldness. Timidity is not a pastor's friend. You've got to be sure of where you stand with God to be a pastor. But ego 
is boldness that's standing alone. When I take a stand, I need to do so humbly, connected to God, conscious of my dependence on Him. Whereas some pastors I've seen stand alone behind a godly facade, representing their own selfish interests and will. I really want to follow God, not my own ego. Once Corey Ten Boone was asked if it were difficult for her to remain humble, she replied, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on the back of a donkey and everyone was waving palm branches and throwing garments on the road and singing praises, do you think for one moment it ever entered the head of that donkey that any of that was for him? If I can be a donkey on which Jesus Christ rides, I'll happily give him all the praise and all of the honor. I love Corey's word picture. Certainly that donkey that carried Jesus was sure-footed, and he was unafraid of the crowd. He was up to the task. But humility is remembering that Jesus rides in the saddle, not me, and that I'm on a journey to bring him glory. Over the last 40 years, I've stayed committed to following one God and teaching one book, the Bible. Without a doubt, nothing about pastoral ministry has benefited me more personally than the discipline of teaching God's Word week after week, 40 plus years. There's another verse here in Psalm 119. It's verse 9. And there the psalmist asks, How can a young man cleanse his way? And then he answers it, by taking heed according to your word. Note the psalmist doesn't ask, how can a young child cleanse his way? Or how could a grandma cleanse her way? I mean, little kids and grandmas are not the most notorious sinners. How dirty could their way be in the first place? Oh, but young men... Young men, adolescent males, are hot-headed and cocky and reckless and hormonal and stubborn and impulsive. I know because I was one. If you can cleanse a young man's way, you can have a cleansing effect on anyone. And what performs this kind of industrial strength cleansing? By taking heed according to God's word. Only the Bible can tame a lust and renew a mind and transform a character and break old habits and form a new outlook and create sensitivity and spawn self-discipline and refocus priorities and develop faith. Friends, there are literally a thousand shortcuts out there. You can always find some spiritual fad that promises instant results. But the truth is we need a steady diet of God's word and then... We need to let it run its course. I'm thankful that God called me to be a pastor for many reasons, but chief among them is that it's kept me in God's word for a lifetime. I was hungry for God's truth before I became a pastor, but the discipline of studying to teach two Bible studies a week for 41 years has kept my nose and mind and heart in this book. Today, if there's any holiness in my life or purity of heart or strength of faith, It's because of the impact of the Bible. One year, my son and I, we were given passes to the Masters Golf Tournament, the toughest ticket in sports. 
We sat down next to this fellow on the 18th green. It turns out he owned a bar in Missouri. And he bartered keg parties for bastards badges. He told us the whole story. He had no idea what Christianity was about. But after talking about himself for a while, he asked me, he said, what do you do for a living? And when I told him I was a pastor, he got so excited. He said, I've got some questions. And I'll never forget his first. He said, I once had a friend who wanted to be a pastor and he went to this seminary place maybe three or four years. And I've never figured out why he needed that much schooling. All you guys got is one book. That Missouri bartender was more insightful than a lot of pastors that I know. When will we realize God makes it so simple? He isn't asking us to pour over hundreds of volumes or memorize libraries. He's only given us one book. You know, on occasion, someone new to our church will suggest, Pastor, we need to worship more here. We need to extend the music time. Or we need insights on political and social issues. You need to keep us more informed. Or we should spend some time in prayer and fellowship on Sunday mornings. And trust me, I'm all for worship and proper social involvement and opportunities to minister to one another. But make no mistake about it, the one overarching, pressing priority I cannot neglect is the study of God's Word. Romans 10 verse 17 declares... Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Without God's word, God's people will flounder from a weak faith. You know, the churches I attended growing up taught from the Bible. They just didn't teach the Bible. And there is a not-so-subtle difference. In most churches, the pastor sets the agenda, and he uses select verses to launch into some feel-good thoughts. But that is a far cry from teaching the Bible and letting the book speak for itself. I've heard it said, it takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. And for 40 years, this has been my commitment. We're on our fifth time now through the Bible. You know, sadly, too many pastors use a Pandora approach to Scripture. I'm sure you've listened to music on the Pandora app. You type in an artist or a song that you like, and an algorithm creates a playlist of similar sounding music. And as each song plays, Pandora allows you to thumbs up or thumbs down that particular song. This helps the algorithm further tailor the music to your likes and your dislikes. And this is how some pastors treat the Bible. They read of God's love and click a like. But the Bible's stance on gender roles, oh no, that's a thumbs down. The parable of the prodigal son, oh, that's a like. Slaughter of the Canaanites, oops, that's a thumbs down. Hope for the hurting, oh, that's a thumbs up. Sobriety and holiness, oh, I'm not sure about that, that's a dislike. And as with a Pandora playlist, this shapes the pastor's teaching. Rather than deal with the whole counsel of God, he gravitates towards easy passages or pet passages for himself. This is tragic. And in my opinion, this is what's creating an anemic church today. At the judgment seat of Christ, no pastor will hear the master say, well done, good and faithful servant, if he doesn't turn off Pandora and teach the Bible as is. Well, again, for the last 40 years, 
I've been committed to follow one God, to teach one book, and to love one woman. And where do I begin talking about my wonderful wife? For starters, Kathy Adams is this pastor's longest and most faithful church member. She was there at the very first Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain Bible study. And I am trying to love her in a way that makes sure she attends the last of my Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain Bible studies. No offense, but I learned a long time ago that church members will come and go. But at the end of the day, I want my wife to still be my wife. And if she comes to my church and sits down front and still laughs at my corny jokes, then all the better. And she does. Let me make an observation to you. <clears throat> a pastor can be sexually faithful to his wife, yet still be guilty of adultery. He's more committed to another man's bride than he is his own. When the other woman calls, he drops whatever he's doing with his own wife to answer her. The pastor will even interrupt his own vacation or holiday to entertain this other woman. He, was, he pays more attention to her kids than he does his own. He's more attentive to his mistress than he is his own wife. And who is this other woman? It's the church. It's the bride of Christ. Every married pastor should remember the church is the bride of Christ, not his bride. I'm married to Kathy, not the church. I serve the Lord's church, but my wife deserves the lion's share of my time and affections. And don't misunderstand, pastors at our Calvary Chapel, we work long and odd hours, probably as you do as well. And we do so joyfully. We are on call and we're willing to care for the people that Jesus died to save. But before I'm a pastor, I'm a husband and I'm a dad. And my first obligation is to my wife and children. If you call me and I don't answer, realize it's not because I don't care about your need. I'll call you back at my first opportunity. But just like you, I also have God-given priorities. And it does no one any good for a pastor to sacrifice his family on the altar of ministry. It does no one any good. That's not how any pastor should treat his family. I once heard some good advice to pastors that I've tried to take to heart. I was told the best thing a pastor can do for his family is to build a good church. And the best thing he can do for his church is to grow a healthy family. And I agree. This is why my strategy has always been to give 100% to my family and 100% to my church. You know, when our kids were younger, my assistant pastor James and I, we often commented, you know, it's possible to be a good dad and a good pastor, but if you're both, you won't have time for anything else. And that's true. There's always enough time for what God calls us to do, but that may not include time for our hobbies or our amusements. I'll never forget the fellow who approached me after Bible study, and he said he had decided to join our church. He had been coming for years, and so I figured he already felt that Calvary Chapel was his church home. We don't really have a formal membership, so his statement was odd. 
And I asked him, I said, why have you reached this decision at this particular time? He said, well, Pastor Sandy, I've been watching your wife. And that's a little creepy. I don't want another man watching my wife. But then he added, she seems healthy and happy. And since she thrives under your leadership, I figure that my family will do the same. I still didn't like him watching Kathy, but he has some wisdom. He had some wisdom. Being married to a pastor can be as stifling and as smothering as being incarcerated in a prison cell. Or it can be as flourishing and growing as a garden. And whether it's one or the other depends on the pastor. I've always used my influence to shape our church's expectations of the pastor's wife around what's best for my wife. I've tried to create a ministry life for Kathy that she enjoys, not regrets. This is what any wise pastor does. For 41 years, I've been committed to loving one woman. And I've got to tell you, Kathy and I are in a good groove. Our marriage has never been better. If your marriage is struggling, all I can say to you is don't give up. Create some good grooves. Marriage is like a stiff shoe. It takes a while to break it in, but once you do, you don't want to take it off. The trials you endure now create a trust and a peace that will bless you both later. Even after 41 years, Kathy and I are in love with Jesus and we're still in love with one another. And we are excited about our future. My wife is now fulfilling a dream that she put on hold to raise our kids and help me pastor our church. She's using her earlier training as a nurse on short-term mission trips and is going all over the world serving Jesus. She also loves women's ministry and blesses our church with her wonderful leadership. And she's all in as a grandma to our 10 grandkids. They're all nine years old and under. Can you imagine the fun we have at Thanksgiving? <laughs> That's my wife. Lord willing, the best time of our lives is still ahead. Well, for 40 plus years, I've been committed to follow one God, teach one book, love one woman, and pastor one church. My calling from God, thus my intention has been to die, been to die the pastor of Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain. Now, of course, I don't know God's future plans, and I've always held out the possibility that God could call me elsewhere. I'm the soldier, not the captain. I take the orders, I don't give them. And if the Lord called me to another church, I've always hoped that I would be obedient. But I don't go around looking for other opportunities. I'm proud to pastor our church. I'm pleased with what we've become and are becoming. And I would insult the work of God's spirit, the work that God has done, if I viewed our church as a stepping stone to something bigger or better. Of course, I realize that not every pastor will or even should log 40 years at the same church. I do believe God can call a pastor to uproot and move elsewhere. 
But a pastor's mobility shouldn't be exercised only when the going gets rough or when a better offer comes along or when the grass is greener. No, it should only happen when he's called. For there are definite benefits that come with longevity and stick to itness. You know, some folks think that because Jesus never sinned, he didn't understand temptation. But just the opposite is true. It's not the man who resists temptation to a point and then caves in, but the person who never gives in, he's the one who endures the strongest temptation. And the same is true of pastoring. Abandon your post every few years, just jump ship when it gets tough, and you'll never experience the joys and blessings of the long voyage. Did you know that among all churches today, the average time spent by a senior pastor with the same congregation is four years. Four years. I've been at it 40 years, and in lots of ways, I feel like I'm just getting started. I'm still earning the people's respect. In a world that shuns commitment and seeks to escape anything difficult or troubling, I've tried to set a different example for our people. I don't like quitting on people, and if I don't quit on them, I figure they'll be less likely to quit on me. You can't develop meaningful relationships without giving it time and letting those friendships run their course. I know too many pastors that have grown cynical over the years. They get hurt, and they harbor their bitterness, the carousel of people that is always coming and going from your church. And it happens in every church. It causes the pastor and his wife to protect themselves from rejection, to shield themselves from hurts. They grow a hard heart. I've learned a better way to cope. It's called grace. And I've learned grace largely from the church I pastor. Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain has always been a grace place. It's full of the most loving and forgiving and accepting folks you'll ever meet. On occasion, we'll have a church member leave us disgruntled, and they'll post their angst on Facebook. Ever happened to you? And guess who's always quick to chime in with their encouraging words and to lift up that former brother or sister? It's the folks they left behind at Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain. I see their posts and I'm thinking, well, if they want to leave, just let them leave. Serves them right to fix their end. But our folks love the one lost sheep as much, if not more, than the 99, and they're so quick to reach out. Our church challenges me to hold no grudges. Grace loves the unlovable and it accepts the unacceptable. I teach grace, but our church lives it out and stretches me to follow. You know, usually when church members relocate elsewhere, they tell us that they underestimated how difficult it would be to replace their church. And I know why. The relationships forged in a church family become some of life's greatest treasures. A church really can become not just a family, but even stronger than a family. Christians share the deepest dimension of life together, its sadnesses and its joys. Over the last few years, I've traveled quite a bit to speak at conferences and retreats, and I've been asked if I'd ever like to do it full time. 
And my answer is always no. I appreciate the opportunity to share with other groups, but I would miss the friendships and the connection that comes from seeing the same folks week after week. I take great joy in watching the same people grow in their faith toward God and in their love for one another. Of course, I'm well aware that if the Lord delays, I won't be a pastor forever. And don't worry, if I start drooling in the pulpit and become a liability, I won't need to be told to step down. But I'm just 63 years young, with plenty of tread left on my tires, and I still intend to keep rolling. One of my priorities over the next few years is to invest in the next generation. For now that I'm closer to the end of my race than its beginning, I'm realizing more than ever that the race we run is a relay race. And we won't win unless we pass the baton successfully. I like what Pastor Joe McKeever writes. No matter how serious a pastor may be about a long tenure, it's not going to happen apart from the intervention of the Lord himself. And after 41 years, I agree. Jesus made a promise to build his church. Then he called me and individualized that promise to my heart. It's that promise that has sustained me every day since. I love what is said of God in Jude 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. For 41 years now, I have sought to keep my commitments, to follow one God, and to teach one book, and to love one woman, and to pastor one church. But it's only because God has made a commitment to me first. God has intervened in my life and in my ministry so many times. He's kept me from stumbling, and I'm confident he'll lead me home. As the psalmist said, I will run the course of your commandments, for you shall enlarge my heart. Make a commitment to God, and as that commitment runs its course in you, God will enlarge you. He will enlarge your strength, and your vision, and your mind, and most of all, He will enlarge your heart. You know, I grew up around church leaders who soured over time. They didn't respond well to the rigors of ministry. And they ended up with closed minds and small hearts. But if we let God's commandments run their course in us, God promises to create open minds and big hearts. Isn't that what you want? I'm asking God to make room in my heart for new people to love and new visions to pursue and new thoughts to contemplate and new directions to take and new technologies to use and new methods to employ, and new generations to reach. I want to keep growing in my faith and in my usefulness. In the Revelation, Jesus writes seven letters to seven churches, and the most encouraging letter is to Philadelphia, called the Church of the Open Door. For Jesus says, I've set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, and have kept my word, And have not denied my name. God opened a door of opportunity that no one could shut. You know, over the last two years, the coronavirus 
has caused churches to lock down and close up. Today, let's pray for ways to open up our doors, our arms, our hearts. And notice the fact that the church of Philadelphia had just a little strength. Didn't disqualify them from the opportunities God had for them. Jesus opens doors not for churches who have lots of people or money or talent, but he opens doors for churches that keep his word and honor his name. And this is Calvary Chapel's forte. We keep his word. And this is what excites me about our future. Jesus will go before us. Jesus is going to open doors for us. He's going to create opportunities. He's going to cut paths where there weren't any. Let your commitments and God's promises run their course. Create godly grooves in your life and in your ministry. Hey, log in a decade or two of faithfulness. Lay down some obedience. Remember, fruitfulness takes time. Yet in the end, godly grooves produce large hearts and open doors. They'll make your ministry truly groovy. Father, thank you for this morning. Lord, we look forward to lunch for the good fellowship that'll follow. Thank you, Lord, for the calling you've put on our lives. And Lord, we've all committed ourselves to building the church. And as we've been doing it, Lord, you've been building us. Oh, how thankful we are for that. We love you, Lord, and ask you to pour out your love upon us, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless.